Hello, we are live on episode two of the Fun Friday podcast with a very good friend and an absolute stud in the business. He's got so many businesses going on, it's hard to even give a nice title to it. But let's please give a warm welcome to everyone that's watching to Sam Silverman. How are you today, sir? I'm good, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to connect with you. I feel as if we see each other now at least once a week through the many mediums we're a part of together, whether it be raising for deals or being a part of your mastermind network that we'll dive into today as well. Yeah, yeah. And I would definitely see in a lot of you, which is never a bad thing. Right, right, right. So we have a lot to talk about today. You have a lot to break down and I'm excited to you know, really unpack you who you are and what you've been up to the last couple of years, because you have such an interesting and dynamic story. So I guess maybe just tell us about you know your journey of finding alternate investments, the multifamily space, um, and he, how you got into raising money for deals and deploying your own money into deals to start with. Yeah, so my background is in tech sales, right? Out of college, I had no clue what I wanted to go do. The one thing I knew was that I wanted to make a lot of money and eventually work for myself. And the best way to do that is in the interim, make as much money as you possibly can. That way, when you figure out what it is you actually want to do with your time, you can go a lot bigger, a lot quicker and make that that adjustment really fast. So started in tech sales, moved my way up really quickly, ended up leading and kind of building out a large team at a public company in which we built a team from zero to 120 plus people globally. And that team's sole function was go find target accounts that look similar to accounts we've sold to in the past and go find the executives and kind of buyer profiles we've sold to previously that kind of fit the build for who we can go sell to. And the reason why this actually ties so well, we'll kind of close the loop here shortly for profiling and finding investors, right? So from there in the real estate space, started buying single family houses, right? Buying long-term rentals in up and coming areas where you'd buy a property one at a time, you find the property, you get the debt in the property, you put all the effort into it, have a property manager for it. And eventually I think I had to nine to 10 houses and realized this was just in no way the best use of my time and brain power, right? There were a lot of things that were very frustrating in doing so, and it just wasn't scalable enough. Like I realized that my time was better spent earning more money in my day job versus trying to maximize a portfolio that was nominal in the scheme of things. So from there, sold all those properties off listen to the full podcast circuit, all those big names you hear of, found out what syndication was where you can get, you know, fractional ownership in these larger type commercial deals that you had no clue to access to for writing a check and be done, being done with it. So mine, I think I got into 18 deals as a limited partner before I realized that there were two things that matter, right? One is you find a deal and two is you find the capital to go fund those deals. And for me and my background, my background was in, you know, training teams to go hunt and find the right profile of people that tied very, very well to finding investors, right? So leverage those exact same sales skills to build out a big investor list, went back and actually partnered with a handful of the sponsors that I worked with uh, as a limited partner, right? Got great exposure as an LP in a few things, right? One, what you like from experience, two, what you'll not tolerate from experience. Three, it's like a full educational course that is you know, potentially highly paid. Right. So it's, you know, with your own money, you can be very, very free and loose as to how you allocate it. Right. Where if I lose a dollar my own money, the sole cost is one dollar. If I lose dollar investor capital, that cost is probably five, ten, twenty dollars in the scheme of things in terms of 
reputation, brand risk, et cetera. So, you know, here we are now two and a half years or so later from kind of my first equity raise, $65 million in retail capital, 40 different projects across, you know, asset classes such as multifamily partners like you all, the STR space and short-term rentals, think Airbnbs, the debt space, the mobile home park space, the RV space, the storage space, right? So really going deep as a capital allocator and being able to go find different types of projects that, you know, round up my portfolio and investors have played about the same thing. I love that. And what I love too is I can't grow a beard. You can, but we're the same <laughs> age. So I think I'm about maybe a month or two older than you are. Uh, so you are very, very, very successful for anything age adjusted. It's incredible. It's off the charts. So you made a lot of money. You've been very successful at a very, very early age, which is rare, you know, speeds, the X factor, stuff like that. Right. When did you start acquiring your first properties? And then when did you start raising money for these deals? Cause you just mentioned $65 million of retail equity raised. That's more money than a lot of people raise in their, their lifetime, right? So what was kind of the timetable on that? And you started investing, getting your first houses. And then when did you start raising that money for those deals at what time? Because it sounds like you may have hit the market really nicely on some of these acquisitions, whether for the single family homes for the debt or just, you know, the cycle of, you know, when before, you know, kind of the interest rate environment got higher, right? So can you walk us through that? Yeah, so I think I started buying property probably in 2017, 2018, right in terms of single families and kind of shifted all those off by 2019. From there, started investing as an LP and kind of in, you know, mid to, you know, early to mid 2021 did my first deal, uh, kind of the operator standpoint on the capital side, right? So probably the last two and a half, you know, 30, 31 months or so as a capital raiser, uh, kind of in that $65 million window. And um, that captures some really good years. And also this year was definitely a down year in terms of capital, right? My take is that every dollar you raise in 2023 is probably two or $3 in normal year. And every dollar you raise in 2022 was probably, you know, 50 cents in a normal year, right? So you kind of have the best of both worlds on each side of it in terms of the equity space. Right. So you said you read, read a bunch of books, you listened to podcasts. Is that how you educated yourself? Did you have any mentors in this space? Or, I mean, I know you're really, really intelligence. So you can kind of read stuff and absorb it. You've always been a business-minded person. I, I remember you telling me growing up in New York, you were always kind of running businesses and whatnot and figuring out a way to make a buck. You've always been scrappy in that regard. So were you also likewise to that uh, self-taught as you, as you said? So yes and no, right? I think part of what really helped me was it's really easy to ask people for their time when you've written them checks for six figures over and over again. Right. The sponsors that I worked with were larger groups, right? I think I had access to those people, one, for being able to go hit my, my capital raise targets with them, and two, by writing them a check prior to that. So for me, you're basically paying to play in that context where I got to see around some different people, see different deal structures. But, you know, at first, that's the first deal I did. You know, one of the reasons why I started fully funded, right, was to help new capital raisers, help existing capital raisers kind of be aware of those pitfalls that they may not know they're falling into. For example, the first deal that I did had a huge stack of prep equity in a deal, right? And what that means is that there's debt, the prep equity is then paid, and then all the LP capital is then paid as well. Prep equity can be a great tool if used the right way, but my lack of understanding of how that was used at the time was definitely a big downfall. And what I mean by that is that the prep equity stack was so large that 
that eats up all the yield and then pushes a lot of the risk onto limited partners. So what the prep equity can do in the right scenario is that it's simply capped in terms of return, meaning that if a deal performs very well, the deal ceiling is higher for the LPs, but then the floor is also lower if it underperforms. So long story short in this deal, you know, I think I raised roughly a million dollars for it. I'll likely make nothing on that project myself, right? Where, you know, it takes a lot of my time and headspace now, and it's probably one and a half percent total capital that I've raised. So I would have paid tens of thousands of dollars to not do that deal for the level of effort, time and pain that goes into it, and also just the risk to investors, but also the not being profitable for the million dollars I raised myself, right? So part of the reason why I started this community was help people go avoid those things that they don't know they're missing. Being something you realize when kind of starting a new business or moving up to a certain rank, whether it be in tech sales, for example, right? You know, I was a VP of sales, very, very young, where you have very few people who are your age or demographic you can go relate to. I think in this space as well, what people probably don't realize is that you'll have people around you who can give you, you know, be empathetic to you, right? Like a spouse, friends, whatever it may be. They can understand what you're going through from like a personal level, but they actually offer like tangible, actionable advice. Most likely not, right? So having people in a very niche industry that are around you and go support you in a way that getting things answered, like there are questions I would pay $10,000 to have the answer for, right? So having a, a form of people around you who are doing the same thing, working to get better and all focused on one very, very clear topic, I think is a huge value. So to answer your question, no formal education, but I've done enough in terms of learning by trial and error, learning by getting punched in the face and learning by just doing things over and over again and kind of taking those sales skills to go apply to it and all the deal structuring that I've gotten the you know knowledge from sponsors on um, to kind of bring it all together to help people going forward as well. And it's kind of funny you mentioned that because just in the real estate business generally, I wish it wasn't so. And there are, you know, certain teams that can help you out. You know, fortunately, I get to work with Lone Star Capital and Rob, where I really get an encyclopedia of knowledge. But when I was starting residential real estate to that point, it's a school of hard knocks. It's a figure it out business. And that's very, very challenging. And to have the answers you said and kind of the information that's in the fully funded group um, and, you know, a, a solid mastermind, you know, as you said, maybe a $10,000 question, it could be a million dollar question. It could be reputation on the line. If you actually have the right people that are there to help you avoid a massive pitfall where earlier on in your business, it's harder to overcome errors. If you've got, you know, 50 stories of being successful and exits, then you can afford a mess up or two or a deal not performing anything. But if you raise equity from your friends and family on a de- the first deal and it fails and flops, good luck getting money from that person again. Not realistic, right? So as I'm sure you can relate to that. So, you know, with that said, you you mentioned a couple of things, but I want to really dive into that. And that's the business that you're working on. So it seems to me as if you've got three prongs to uh, your business, correct? Can you elaborate and please deep dive into them? Yeah, so there's three main businesses that kind of tie up my time uh, right now. So one is Silverman Capital, where we partner with operators in either a co-GP or fund-to-fund structure to help bring our investors to their projects. Those projects consist of you know working with top sponsors in different asset classes. So my big take on here is that I'm a full-time past investor as well, right? I have every dollar I own is either in one cash or two LP deals. I think I'm in 60 two, 63 deals at this point, I have zero money in the stock market for better or for worse, right? And we only invest in deals that we personally invest in as well. So we work with people, you know, like you all, multifamily space in the 
uh, mobile home park space, RV space, uh, debt fund space, right? So a variety of asset classes, sponsors, and, you know, whole times, durations, um, markets, locations, right? So like our goal there is to be very diversified for our investors, right? Our big take on is that if you're only bringing someone a certain type of project, a certain operator, a certain asset class, and they have a dollar to go invest, maybe you can go collect a quarter, 30 cents from them, right? But we want to be able to collect that full dollar as much of it as possible. And what we've realized is that we can't go be experts in every area. We found people who have gone a mile deep versus a mile wide, right? We've gone a mile wide in sponsors. And now we're kind of tightening that back in with who we work with going forward. But our intention is to work with experts in the top of the top in each asset class, in each location, so that we can bring diversity and have partners who specialize in each given area. Second is Techfester. I run a fund all focused on short-term rentals, right? So vertically integrated, we are likely the largest owner-operator in the space in the class that we're in, right? I have two partners there. I run all of our capital markets. So I think it's a great asset class from the standpoint that we're still early. Our big thesis there is that single family homes are mispriced asset class. Currently, they trade on a comparison value, right? So square footage, finishes, location, et cetera, right? Where every other asset class in real estate today trades in a cap rate. What we've seen so far is that properties are starting to trade at a cap rate in the SDR space, right? So we're seeing a big institutional interest right now for built out portfolios because unlike multifamily where you can buy a property for, you guys just closed on a property for $105 million, right? Give or take across three assets and in a close proximity area. In the STR space, you can't do that right now. There aren't fully built out stabilized portfolios people can go buy. And building yourself requires a full operational company, right? You have the you know, acquisitions one by one. You have the financing one by one, the renovation and construction, the data build out, right? The actual, um, you know, design infrastructure, right? The management is much tougher. So what we're seeing is that institutions are very interested in buying fully built out portfolios. And we're building a moat around that space right now where we work with, you know, capital partners there too on the fund to fund side of the house where we're looking to go scale up in a big way and then go exit that portfolio to an institution in the future. And then third, we also run a community called Fully Funded, which is a mastermind for capital raisers. We typically have, you know, three types of members in that community. I'd say one kind of people like Rob and Craig, who are owner operators, they find value in primary two ways. One is, you know, learning how to raise more capital themselves. And two is finding capital partners for their projects, right? Second, kind of think of myself, right? A capital allocator where we find value by learning how to raise more capital ourselves, and also having people to go partner with on capital raises, but more importantly, having vetted operating partners that we can feel confident going into those projects with them. Because as a capital allocator, you're betting on, on, on a jockey, right? So if you make the wrong choices, life is very difficult. Make the right choices, your life is very, very easy. And third, we've got a lot of people who are, you know, breaking into this space now as well, whether they have a great background in tech sales, right? In terms of that pedigree of going out and hunting, they're knowledgeable, high income, and want to go start being involved in the space, or they come from an acquisitions background, a brokerage background, and looking to go start raising money as a, you know, side, hopefully to be full-time type hustle. Right. So, you know, and the one thing I love about the fully funded group, and he's mentioned that, and I have notes for every single kind of topic that we've uh, you've gone through silverman capital tech fester and fully funded but to your point on fully funded it's so important to be part of the community and so many people that are new to the business really don't know what they don't know 
So if you're looking to be a part of something that can help you get structure, that can help you figure out left from right, up from down, and really get your bearings straight in a business that is you know, a little bit more primitive than not with kind of these alternative investments and kind of setting up the documents, the legal process, structuring the capital stack, meeting people that are reputable. This is a great launch pad and, and start to place to do this. So I've had a really good experience so far in the fully funded group. So this is my recommendation in stamps. I just left you a testimonial as well. Uh, so couldn't recommend it enough for those who are looking to figure out the business and uh, learn more and network with a lot of people that are, that are there. As far as tech investors go, so you mentioned you want to, or tech investor, excuse me, you want to bundle up a bunch of properties for your funds, correct? So how much do you raise per fund? How do you structure the deal in reference to you know uh, your DTI on that, or I guess the the leverage point on that? And if I'm not mistaken as well, you kind of do a flip process too, where you acquire a property that's you know, maybe it doesn't have the backyard set up how it needs to, or the interior finish is a little bit stale. And then you kind of do like a micro flip to it, if you will, to get it up to snuff for Airbnb standard. So can you kind of walk through those nuances and maybe how long you're supposed to hold the properties in that fund? Yeah. So our first fund was, we closed that late last year, about $37.5 million of equity in that fund, right? We're currently on fund two. We're at roughly $30 million, give or take, depending what's signed, wired, and, and accredited, verified. Um, likely cap this fund at $50 million, and then launch you know, fund three shortly after as well. Uh, when looking at the debt, you know, debt to income, or sorry, the um, leverage in the portfolio, right? All the debt we're getting is non-cross-collateralized as of right now, individual property type loans, all commercial product in the DSCR space by the debt service coverage ratio. Um, you know, typically multifamily, you see 1.25 as baseline. We're seeing 3x across our portfolio once stabilized, right? So we're getting leverage about 25%, 26% down on average. It's, it's actually creeping up a little bit right now in terms of how much we go put down because of lending's tightening up a bit. Um, but the nice thing there is that we're forcing level of appreciation typically by renovating properties when we acquire them. And the debt we're getting on our property is saying fund two, for example, roughly 25% of our debt is 10 year interest only fixed rate debt. The remaining 75% is 30 year P&I fixed rate debt. So a big thing that we think about in real estate is that the biggest time you get burned is if you're a forced seller. We negate that in two ways. Actually, three. One, fixed rate debt for at least 10 years. We model a five-year hold period, and our intention is to exit in five years. But if we have to go hang on longer, we're in a position where we're not going to be a forced seller. Second, our DSCR is roughly 3x across the portfolio, blended for seasonality. Right In certain months like July, we're over 4x. We're in months like you know October, November, we're probably more like 2.5x. So it depends on the month. Our portfolio is pretty blended across seasonality areas as well. Right, certain markets perform better in the summer, certain markets the winter. Right, so uh, we're nationwide, and then you also look at the standpoint of we can cut off the finger and say the body if we have to. When you're dealing with transactions that are a large multifamily apartment complex, I'm in one right now. I live in one. Right, this is probably a hundred million dollar building. You have three options typically: one, you hold it; two, you sell it; three, you refinance it. When having you know a hundred plus, plus properties in the portfolio, you can sell one off if you have to. But if there's ever a cash crunch for whatever reason, we can go sell a property off, right? If you have a property that's a cancer, whether the renovation budget is too high, whether you have just issues ongoing, you can go sell it, right? So you have a lot of optionality with how you manage your cash, how you manage the portfolio itself. And you can also have different exit options too, right? You can sell off properties one by one to retail investors. 
each actually qualifies for an SBA loan, right? So you can get very high leverage for someone looking to build a business that way. Second, we can go sell them off to a fractional ownership site, right? That go sell some piece of, of vacation homes to individual buyers. Third, we can go sell them to a local family office who wants to buy all of our properties in a given area. Or fourth, we can actually roll up our entire portfolio and that can be a combination of fund one, fund two, three in the future, et cetera, right? To an institutional type group that wants to go buy, you know, 500 doors at a time and have that scale. So we have got a lot, a lot of optionality that we feel as though offers a lot of downsides for both us and our investors from looking at that side of it. So, you know, the other thing that I find really beneficial with single family homes, as you mentioned, is the debt profile because commercial debt, the longest term we're going to get is going to be 10 years. So you're always going to have to have a, you know, kind of a liquidity event, whether it be a refinance, whatever it may be. Most people don't hold it for 10 years, but single family, 30-year debt notes, as you said, you got 10-year interest only. Uh, you can't really do that in the commercial space. It's very rare, that loan product type that's fixed rate, right? So that's awesome. And then after that 10-year note, is it um, principal and interest moving forward for the next 20 years? And is it fixed there? Or is it floating after that? Not that you'd hold the property so for 10 years. But... I'd say, yeah, I'd say the bulk. I'd say it's probably 50-50, right? 50-50 in terms of half is a balloon payment and then half actually rolls into a 30-year P&I. Right. And when you said you want to bundle these together to exit, is that bundling 10, 15, 20, or is that the entire fund? What does that look like? So in ideal scenario, we'd find a programmatic buyer that wants to buy you know, each portfolio after, say, a T36, right? We think we'll have to show a longer trailing history at first. So what we think is that our fund hold time by portfolio should get shorter and shorter each time once it becomes more commonplace for portfolios this to be purchased. So in an ideal scenario, we find one buyer who programmatically builds in, you know, a cap rate, whatever that, that may be, right? Again, that goes and buys each of these portfolios as they hit T36s, right? That's ideally our best case scenario. But we have the optionality of selling off pieces of it or very small pieces of it going forward. Um, it's going to maximize profit. So again, we make our money like you all do as well on the exit, right? And we, you know, hit above our preps to investors. So whatever will maximize those dollars we want to go do. But our hunch is that selling the entire portfolio, we need the biggest, you know, most compressed cap rate in doing so, similar to a service business, right? Where I think if you have a lawn care company, you have one of them, your multiple is X, where if you have 100, then multiple is probably 2X or 2.5X, right? Same type, of, same type of model where we feel the more we have, bigger scale we have, the more compressed valuation that we'll see. Awesome. Well, that's really interesting. And, and it's so cool to see TechFester grow. Your team's awesome. Sabrina, Seif, and, and everyone associated there that I've met and had the pleasure to do so is great. So hope everyone's doing well in the TechFester team and hope to see them at a conference soon. I imagine you guys will all be at RaiseFest in Phoenix. So that'll be fun. Um, going on to Silverman Capital, how do you find an operator? You know, on your end, what was that vetting process like? And I'm sure you've had to work with some that you'll never want to work with again. And some you're like, hey, you know what, whatever that is, whatever they want to do, hopefully I can raise for you. Know, I think we're at the level, we're close to it, where as long as the underwriting doesn't look totally bogus and you can kind of look through it, which it never would from us, but you probably want to say yes to, which is we're so happy to have partners like you in that regard. But you know, how do you find an operator? Do you have like a screening test? Do you have like a due diligence test? I know, shout out to Matt Owen. He's got a 200 point due diligence checklist, which I really look forward to sifting through 200 questions to get through the yes to that, but part of the process. Uh, but with that said, you know, what is your screening screening um, due diligence like? 
So I'd say two things, right? One, even before we even touch on this topic, I think right now people with capital have a lot more optionality with who they go partner with on deals, right? There are great deals out there. The issue is that those deals are harder to go fund because there's less capital in the market right now. And those deals need probably one and a half, two X the capital they did last year, that same level of project, right? So I think we're seeing the power dynamic shift a little bit in the favor of the capital raiser going forward. But when you kind of look at how to go pick a partner, I think the first thing is just a gut check, right? Like when you talk to someone and I give an example, I manage my entire mom's portfolio, right? All of her money is in projects that I choose to allocate to because I know whatever short in the future, I'm covering either way. It's basically my money for her in the future, right? So the easiest thing for me is that if you talk to someone and you're like, would I sleep okay if I gave a six-figure check for my mother to this person? And the answer is not immediately a yes, it's an absolutely not, right? Like numbers <laughs> aside, market aside, like deal aside, if I wouldn't feel comfortable giving that person six figures of my mom's money, just like off the gut check, like who they are as people, absolutely not, right? Like there's no written way to go evaluate this. It's you just get a certain feeling from people that's either good or bad, right? And talk to someone that you can be as objective and emotional as, as, you know, as you want about it, right? Like it's just the truth. And then you kind of dig from there. It's, you know, What's their team look like? I'm a big believer in the who matters more than anything else. Because what people don't realize is that you look at underwriting for a project, like everything is wrong. People get so nitty gritty on like the 14, 15, 16 IRR, like really who cares, right? In the grand scheme of things, you made 14 versus 16% and you're far more likely to make that 14 versus 16, take that, right? So it's more so what you understand is like who these people are as people. And then I love to go see is, them having social capital into the project and the brand. And what I mean by that is that I actually care less about how much cash they have into the deal. People get so tied up is this sponsor only has 5%, 8% of the equity. One who cares? If you're doing volume of deals, keep your cash on hand. I'd rather them have cash on hand if they have to do a capital call, they fund that first, right? Versus having LP equity in the deal. So that matters actually very little to me, how much cash they have in the deal. I'd rather a group that has a big brand in place that like, you Google Rob, you're asked like Rob's name to people in the space. Everyone knows who he is. So if he does something unethical, he's blacklisted immediately, right? So you know that his social capital is, he's earned that in a big way the last few years of his work, that if he puts a black mark on that, that'll cost him way more than how much money he can put into a deal. Well, and right? his future earnings. Yeah, they dwindle, right? And, and to that point, we only have two exits. So with two exits, you better be darn good on all your acquisitions you're coming up because we're going to be scrutinized until we go through a market cycle. So we can't afford to really have any blemishes where we're at. You know, most operators can't. You hope that everyone looks at it from that lens. But if you've got 20 exits, you have a lot more wiggle room than a group like us, frankly, no matter how, you know, cool we look or, or you know, not cool, however you want to perceive us. But to that point, that social, you know, currency in that regard is so important because we need to perform. We don't have an option to perform. You know, then we're just the loud person on the internet that gets no results. And that's the worst. <laughs> so performance can be forgiven in the right circumstances, right? Performance in terms of if you come up a few percent short in a deal. What can't be forgiven is how you interact with and communicate with investors and anything ethical that goes on to a deal that that is scrutinized, right? Those are things that you want, where you want people who are held to a high level of accountability for who they are as people because of the brand and social, you know, social capital they have. That's a big thing for me. I'd rather Rob not put any money into his deals besides the blender needs to go prove it 
and keep that cash on hand where if there's an issue that can be funded from someone like himself first versus anything else, right? I also want to say they're in a stable financial position too. I don't want someone who's doing one deal kind of scrapped together where they need that deal to go live on. But I want to see a programmatic offering where that I know if I go spend all this time doing, doing due diligence, I then train my investors on, hey, this is what their deals look like going forward, right? These, you know, they fit in, in this box. They may look a little different, but like they fit in this box, these bounds. They say you can kind of profile this deal, right? In this category of your, your kind of portfolio balance. So I want to see it being very consistent, very simple. Um, that's a big piece of it. And obviously next you look at, you know, what is the actual deal itself in the market, right? Certain markets is also as a capital raiser are really tough to go sell. Like I'm from New York, right? I'm, a, I'm from Brooklyn. I could not go raise money for a deal in Brooklyn to save my life. So even that deal is a great deal. I can go sell my investors on, hey, go invest in Brooklyn, right? Just because, you know, it's perceived as a market in which may not be the best market to go invest into, right? Great place to go live. I'm glad I'm from there. But like you look at it from the standpoint of it has to be a good market to go sell, right? One has to check out from the underwriting, the financials, the assumptions, et cetera. But two, if you can't go sell it, right? Like certain products are easier to go sell. And what you're doing as a capital raiser is you are selling this investment offering. It's not true. It's not sales sales, but it's sales, right? So people are opting into what you're offering them. So making sure it's actually marketable and people want to go opt into it is really important. So what you'll see at times is that it's okay to make less money, you know, essentially for a capital raise, if that raise becomes easier and easier to go do, and you can go sleep more at night in doing so. So no, it wasn't a lot of like tangible quantitative answers for you. The biggest thing is, is who they are as people. Because if you look at a deal, something that deal will go wrong. Whether that, whether that makes or breaks deal and how they react to it is a huge piece of it. So I'd say, you know, ethics, social capital, um, kind of their personal financial standing, right? Are they, you know, I like working with people who are kind of on the up and coming versus people who've already made it. The reason that there's still more hustle there, right? In my opinion. Uh, and they've got more runway to go prove themselves and they haven't made it, made it yet. Right. So like, I like seeing they have to go work for it still. Um, I don't have a 200 point checklist like Matthew Owens, which is awesome. I'm definitely going to ask him for that as well. But I think it's a big thing. And just in terms of, you know, you're betting on the people more than anything else. That's awesome. Speaking of people, there's no business without investors. So I know you've been big on LinkedIn for some time now. But has that been the primary source of investors? How have you been able to find it? Because none of this matters if you can't find that. So I guess for a couple of things, you need fund managers and obviously retail capital for Techfester. But then for Silverman Capital, it's all you know retail investors, right? So where have you been able to source it? Because you know I think everyone ideally- I think 98, yeah. I think 98 percent of my capital, give or take, has come from LinkedIn or people I've met who have been referrals from people I've met on LinkedIn. So- I view raising capital as kind of a few different buckets, right? One bucket is, you know, if you're a capital allocator, it's who are your partners, right? Like finding good partners to go work with who make your life easy, easy to go raise, easy to go manage deals, et cetera. Second is making sure you're doing things in a compliant way, right? And then third, it's how do you go build out your investor base to go present projects to? And I think that's like a five-step process. One is figuring out who's that profile of person. This ties back to the software sales days, right? Buyer personas. So for me, my background was in tech sales, right? People who are, you know, high income and in tech, in tech sales, you are a quarter away from a six figure check. 
you're also a quarter away from being fired for performance. So that gives you a great upside and great downside. I think we see people who, you know, have these big pops of cash and liquidity. So one is understanding who that person is, right? Who's that profile you're targeting? Second, it's what's your common connection story for them, right? For me, I was that person two years ago, right? I was an executive in tech and the sales side of it. So I can really go speak their language, understand, you know, what time of the month is good for them? What time of the quarter is good for them, right? I can, I can understand what they're going through. Yeah, you're one, you're inside two, their brain because you've been that I know guy. what they make, right? Yeah. Like I can go to their LinkedIn profile and tell you how much they make, right? Give or take, you know, like within the standard deviation of it. Third is figuring out, okay, where do I go find them at scale? For me, you go pull up LinkedIn sales navigator, VPs of sales in the United States, you probably got 200,000 of them, right? Like I've raised $65 million from 275 investors. You don't need 5,000 people. So like people like this big mistake of, I need to go speak to everyone. Go very, 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 very niche and nail that niche. You can have a few of them if you want to, right? But like go as niche as possible and nail that. Like know how these people operate and think. Fourth, it's once you have your list of people in front of you broken out. For me, it was always LinkedIn because they, people in sales, like when I was there, my LinkedIn would ding. I would think money is coming to me from a deal. So I would check it immediately. So if somebody reached out to me in there, great place to contact me because I would always see it. But that respond is one thing, but I'd always, always see that. So it's fourth, it's kind of figuring out once you're in front of them, how do you go engage them, book meetings, right? And fifth, once you're actually in front of them meeting-wise, how do you go properly run a call, position an offering, actually ask for money? Something we saw in the sales world really frequently was, you know, the enterprise sales side of it where people were selling, you know, million-dollar-plus deals. A big determining factor of them, we, we test this before people come on board to help us get you know, better hiring, right? Hiring is a crapshoot where if you can get half right, 6% right, you're nailing it. So the thing we saw really frequently was how comfortable are people talking about money? So I think a big thing too when talking about raising money is how comfortable are you talking about people's finances with them, people's money? So um, I view it as those five steps and there's obviously nuances to each step of it, but very, very simple, but in no way easy to go do. Yeah, so, you know, on that cycle as well, you know, kind of you walk us through what capital raising was like in 2021 versus today. How much more wrangling do you have to do? How much more follow-ups associated? Because I know what it's like on our end where it's like, oh yeah, we have to send two or three more extra emails than before, send a couple texts, we really have to stagnate, you know, text, email and call. I don't know how you feel about that, but I don't like to have like a, a chain talking to myself on text. Then I'll hit him with an email. Then I'll hit someone with, you know, like a voicemail or something else. Just doesn't look like I'm that much of a creep, right? But with that said, how much different is the landscape now from 24 months ago? I'd say you're probably three or four times harder to go raise some money as it was in a, in a, in a previous year, right? So yeah. like you're doing a lot more activity for it. Um, it's inherently harder, right? Especially my persona of people, people in tech. You know, if you look at most executives in tech space, a big piece of your compensation is tied to your stock program, right? Where if RSUs, those values have gone down, if options, they may be worthless, right? That that may be your, you know, a big piece of your earnings every year that, hey, I have this lump sum of money now. I want to go do something with it, right? Can I take money off the table from your, your W-2 job? So it's inherently tougher. Um, something we're doing much more so now is, you know, pushing out more content. We are doing a lot more personalized stuff, right? I think when things get tougher, the scale piece of it becomes less important, right? Getting your reach is still really big, but having more personal conversations, understanding what, what people are thinking, how they're thinking about things and um, making sure they feel confident too in 
the deals they're in and what you're doing about those deals as well, right? Because it's really important to make people feel comfortable in, if they already have a million dollars with you, right? And that's a big piece of their net worth, making sure they have confidence in what you're doing with those projects already will help get more capital in the future. So to me, this is like a big building year versus anything else. Like we'll likely raise less money in this year than last year. And people will probably work harder to go do it as well. So um, all I have to say is like, this is a year that you'll separate yourself, either positively or negatively, based on the experience of your investors. Right. And you know, with that said, it sounds like this year is the well digging year where you're probably in touch with your investors more, maybe not maybe asking for money, but just to make sure that they're doing okay. And you know, you're building the relationship part. And then you're also in real time, kind of probably, I'd imagine priming the pump, digging the next well, educating the next series of investors. Would you say that's fair to say with kind of what you're doing at, you know, the various companies that you're, you're uh, at the head of? It's also figuring out what makes more sense, right? Like, what we've seen is that an offering right now with liquidity is cleaning up for us right now as well, right? Because people may be like, hey, we want to go put capital somewhere, but we want to make sure we can go reinvest in the future and want to have our capital liquid, right? I know personally for myself, I'm holding more cash than I did in a previous year, right? So it's also just kind of understanding how people think and having offerings to go fit that can make a lot of sense as well. So I think it's really getting a pulse on what people want, how they're thinking about it, will really enable you to go, you know, still be successful and even times like this. Absolutely. So with that said, you know, walk me through what your dream, you know, portfolio allocation would look like. Like if you had a million dollars that just got plopped into your account, how would you put that to work? Would it be 30% multifamily, uh, 30% self-storage, 30% mobile homes, you know, you name it. How would you spread that million dollars around? Naturally, of course, TechFester, but uh, how would you, you know, spread that out on a pie chart? Yeah, honestly, I've never really thought about it. I've always just gone project by project based on what makes sense the time being. Like I've never really even looked at like, what's my full portfolio balance and what do I have where? But what I can tell you is that longer term holds right now are appealing to me, right? Two things, longer term holds and liquidity and depreciation. Right. You know, I think this is a space, especially if you're on the active side of it, is optimizing for your tax bill is huge. Right. So I've loved things that, you know, I've gone very heavy this past two years, the mobile home park space. For the reason that I'm not giving a direct answer on percentages because I have no clue. Like yeah, I'd be lying to tell you I did, but I'm right. gonna be rational as how I think about it. So in terms of the mobile home park space, the depreciation there is roughly two X what is multifamily. Right. So we have deals we're doing right now. As you look at mobile home park space, you know. Assuming you get full bonus appreciation, which isn't the case anymore, but say you did, you buy party for a dollar, you're likely seeing about 60, 65 cents loss in year one, right? Where in multifamily, it's more of like 30, 35 cents, right? Based on the purchase price. So you're seeing huge appreciation. And those are also deals too, in which once we stabilize them, right? Sell the park-owned homes to the tenants, it becomes a land lease play, right? Clean up the property itself. So people feel safe living there, right? Great in a recession. Um, and also it's just a, you're leasing land, right? It's a dirt play where your OPEX is so low that that's a play where we can go keep refinancing deals for, for the foreseeable future and vintage matters a lot less there. So for us, we want to hang on to those deals forever. So those deals can be huge appreciation up front, and then I can go reinvest the refinances for more depreciation going forward. So from a tax and risk perspective, that's huge for me. I think second, we're going to see some really good deals multifamily come up in the, in the near future as well where people are for sellers, right? They have bad debt in properties, they can't cover their DSCR, the bank is taking the keys back, like whatever that may be, 
right? So for us, we want to be able to go capitalize on that. So in the short term, a lot of a lot heavier in cash, right? Waiting for these true distressed properties to come up and distress less from the property, more so on the debt itself, right? The seller matters more than the actual property, right? So we want people who are, they can't go raise a capital call around, right? They are tapped out of their CapEx campaign's business plan. Their bridge debt's coming up due and they can't go get a new loan or sell it, right? So what we want to see is, you know, people who are really feeling the pain. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we're getting close, but I think that'll happen sometime next year. So in the short term, heavy in cash, so I can go take advantage of that. Multifamily to me will be a great option going forward. I don't think we're there yet right now. We're like, there's still good deals now and deals that are better right now, risk adjusted versus last year, right? Same old, similar term profile, lower leverage, fixed rate debt, less risk, same overall rough return in terms of uh, projections. But I think we're not there yet in terms of seeing like the true pain and suffering. So I want to have cash on hand and putting it in, in a liquid type investments that when that happens, I can go make big checks. So with that said, and I appreciate the answer, the the, the lawyer speak, the walk around there, not answering, answering with no answer. I love it. Uh, but with that said, you have kind of opened my eyes up to some really creative solutions. So as I'm sure a lot of people know, there's you know risk-free money market accounts, there's treasury bills. But there's also a another solution which is kind of similar to that, which is a hard money fund or you know a debt fund. So I know Aspen and PassiveInvesting.com have you know two profiles for that that are probably you know similar with hard money accounts. But is that what you mean by you know basically liquid? Because I'm sure if I'm not mistaken, those are either 30 day, 60 day, or 90 day liquidity. Which hey, if you give them a hundred thousand dollars, you can have that money back in 30 you know a month to three months, and they you know, usually spit out like nine to 12 percent if I'm not mistaken. So is that where you're referring to in reference to you know kind of uh, yeah, easy so we're- liquidity play? Yes, we're big believers in debt funds. I think there's different types of debt funds. I like the hard money side of it better than the kind of bridge debt side because it typically is more liquid and smaller loans. Um, but yeah, you know, Ben and Aspen Funds, they're awesome. Big fans of PassInvestment.com as well for what they're doing. So I think both are great options kind of looking at. There's tons of debt funds out there too. So just kind of figuring out what makes sense for what you're looking for in terms of risk profile, liquidity, right? Because I've seen debt funds that pay anywhere from a 7 to a 14% return. So there's also things that you factor. I am personally okay with the lesser return for lower risk profile and more liquid, right? So I want to see cash cycling more quickly. So in the interim, you know, you're making a few percent better than uh, risk for the risk-free rate for nominal type risk, right? There's obviously nothing is guaranteed, but I'd say it's your closest bet right now in terms of a stable type portfolio. Um, yeah, I like stuff like that for the time being where I'm either going stuff we're not selling, right? Or kind of holding for a while, good fixed rate debt. So mobile home park space, the SDR space, great fixed rate debt, or putting it into cash-like money market-ish accounts, such as debt funds, where I have the flexibility of pulling it when I need to and going to allocate it and making you know bigger checks, bigger bets on projects in the next you know, 12 to 18 months. Awesome. So naturally, there's a lot of headwinds with the debt market going crazy. There's an election year coming up in 2024. There's a lot of just weird stuff. What goes up must come down, right? So we saw crazy appreciation and a run up of the market. You know, it was already a strong market, and then COVID with printing money, things got really crazy. So, with that said, what's making you most nervous about what's coming up with maybe a looming recession kind of around the corner? You know, just with your businesses, with just you know the real estate business itself, maybe with some of the deals you've raised for, some of the deals that you're personally in. Uh, you know, what what's kind of your 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 thought process with regards to to that 
not to be negative, but just to hear how your brain yeah, thinks so about it. I think we're already seeing parts of a recession, right? Like I can tell you, you know, a big thing I love to go out to do is go out to eat really frequently, right? And what we've seen locally is that reservations have become way easier to go get. Yes. Right? Place that typically had, you know, I can book, we booked a reservation tonight for the, this is Friday, we're recording it right now for the same day for four people in restaurant that normally is a two week wait, right? And um, we're seeing it right now. You're seeing GDP was at what, 4.9% last quarter, which I haven't dug in too much, but it's, it's inflated somewhere. Like things popping it up, whether that's government spending, contracts, like whatever that may be. I'm not an expert there, but just things holding that up. So I think actually seeing GDP come down would help a lot of us out in this space because they're already feeling parts of the recession in terms of tightening with the spending, tightening with, with free cash flow throughout the economy. But we're still seeing those numbers that are keeping you know the rates higher for longer. So honestly, anyone's guessing, right? I think we saw rates go up really quickly. They can come down really quickly as well. We're not banking on it. We're kind of planning for the worst and hoping for the best when looking at things like that. But right now, projects we have that might, whether they have you know, bridge debt or whether they have kind of floating rate debt. Right now, we've gone much heavier in operations to stabilize those properties much quicker, right? For example, we used to sell properties in a given metro in, you know, turning 25% of the units. Now it's much more of a, you know, in the peak leasing season, you are renovating as much as possible, as quickly as possible, right? In the winter, you kind of slow down because the leasing is much slower that way anyway. So you're kind of sitting on more cash outlays than a period of time. What we're seeing is that it makes more sense to renovate far more units right now. So that, that way, when and if rates come down to a place or the market shifts in a place where we can go exit and, you know, kind of get out of these some of these deals, we have the opportunity of doing so. So all of it is really tied to, you know, riding out for a period of time in that period of time, making sure the assets you have under management are in position to go take advantage of whatever happens quickly. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny you should say that because I've noticed reservations are substantially easier, which is a canary in the coal mine. Going to Buck and Rider, which you've been to, of course, last night, five minute wait. Usually it could be 30 minutes for the happy hour there, which is, by the way, the best happy hour in America, in my opinion. Tampa, similar to Scottsdale, Phoenix, where I live half the year, basically. The best restaurants are always full and there's basically a shortage of restaurants here. So, you know, and I'm sure Tampa is the yep. same way where people like to go out and eat. And that is definitely a big indicator for sure. So very interesting. You shared that. Yeah, there. And, you know, to your point, things can get a lot worse. Things will get worse. You know, collections haven't been bad yet. Performances on properties haven't been bad yet. Crime hasn't gotten bad yet. But all of those things will happen no matter if you're, you know, really solid properties, if you're on mobile homes, that that will occur and start coming up. Or if you, you know, own a single family home in every portfolio, their break-ins occur as well. So unfortunately, crime does take up when the economy changes. And to your point, I don't know what stats they're pulling from, but I just struggle to buy that information as well. But I don't want to get political here, of course. Um, on the other side of the coin is the optimistic side, which I thrive on optimism. I know you're a very optimistic person as well. And I'd like to believe that things you know, will get better. And, you know, the doom and gloom is not how I operate. What is getting you most excited about the opportunity to come up? Because for us at Lone Star, we're thrilled because we haven't really been battle tested or market tested. We like to think of ourselves as very sophisticated and, and very smart with regards to the brain trust of the firm. Kent and Rob are brilliant and the rest of the team is very sharp as well. So we're thrilled to see what's going to come up. But on your end, what is making you absolutely excited and what, what, is getting you kind of through these tougher times right now, mentally thinking about the other side. So I think one thing that I get truly pumped about too is 
you know, now in Fully Fun, we probably got 70 plus members, 74, 75 members right now. And seeing people still get stuff done, right? Like starting to build businesses for themselves in times where people are getting laid off or times where people are making less money in their day jobs. So I think it's people who are now taking that leap. I can give an example. My previous company, Permetric, we were the deliverer of standardized tests. So think, you know, people are going to take the, you know, example, go be a CPA or go be a financial representative, right? We've seen that kind of stuff dip in terms of volume where people are doing much more of the self-education side of it for more niche businesses. So I think right now is a great time to go build up your business and learn something new, whether it's raising money or whatever it may be, right? Kind of figuring it out. I think people are making that jump right now to build something. That way they're less dependent on that day job income. So that I love seeing. I also think too that, you know, take for example, TechVestor, right? We're yielding nine, 10% across the portfolio when looking at, you know, our stabilized yields over the first year or what kind of we're, we're like project to get to. That's what debt at, you know, eight and a half percent, right? Like if that goes down, you know, we're in a really good spot. So I think it'll actually kind of go force out a lot of these mom pop type operators on our end where we have the opportunity to go create more separation, right? It's been a big year of focus on operations where we can go handle scale going forward. But I think this year and just in general was kind of taking a step back to go take three steps forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we're all in the kind of waiting game to see what happens with the world, the economy, interest rates. So I think we'll know a lot more in the next 12 to 18 months as to how things can and will shape out. Um, but it's also you go control things you can go yeah, that uh, you can uh, control yourself as well and, you know, make decisions with what you, information you actually have. Right, right. Yeah, and we're just thrilled because we, for the first time, think we're going to buy properties that are kind of distressed. And I think Hunter was saying this. Hunter was mentioning how, uh, you know, it shouldn't have even counted with everyone who bought the deals in oh, oh, uh, 2009, 2010, because, you know, markets were so depressed then. But no, that's what you get. And that's what you deserve when you play the game is that you're going to get crazy cycles. You're going to be buying in every part of the market. So that's just, you know, survivor success that you, that you get to take a part of. Final or two final questions, actually. What is the last uh, asset class you'd want to type of or for in real estate? The last asset class you'd want to raise for and invest in, and why? Oof. Hmm. I'm trying to think of like what I haven't raised for that. Well, right now it's Bitcoin mining funds. That's been a complete. Um, complete disaster, not even in terms of Bitcoin, more in terms of potential ethical issues with the operating teams on that. So um, that's one that had a bad experience. Luckily, that was only my own money, right? That'll be a, I've been counting that money is gone. So I like tangible type products. Um, so real estate, you know, I'm really open-minded in that, like as long as it's tangible cash flows. Um, I think office right now is probably something I wouldn't touch with, you know, your money, Craig. And yeah. um Especially just because I don't think we'll see, depending how long the recession goes, I think people have been wired now where these you know, nicer office buildings, especially in markets like San Francisco, just people aren't going to go touch them again. And it, you have all these issues with how you convert them too, right? Go to convert an office space to an apartment building. I like, think it's, it's really tough infrastructure-wise. That's just the, that when I hear that, I'm like, you're silly. Do you understand all the piping associated? So you need to get, you know, cooking now for, for vents, for, for everything associated. There's also, you know, when you go to an apartment build or sorry, a, an office building, there's a very large windows. middle part. There's windows. There's a very large middle part. How, how, how are you going to make that space functional? It makes zero sense. 
So, so I, I think it's, it's good in theory. Um, it's definitely good in theory. So I'd say office just doesn't get me excited at all. One, I don't understand how it'll make a big comeback myself and things that I don't understand very well. I could be, you know, shy away from. And two, I don't think it's very sellable at all right now to investors. So I'd say office space is definitely you know, not appealing in any way. Um, I'm not getting deals in retail myself. I think that can still be a play going forward, but I think much more so in the smaller type market versus anything else. Um, yeah, I'd say office space in tier one cities that are not class A projects are going to be really hurt. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with that more. Finally, last question. What is your hottest real estate take? It that you don't about, have to go about... buy like yeah like you don't have to go buy really big deals right like people get super excited about these super large unit counts and we do deals in, in that size as well but there's a lot of money to be made in doing smaller deals your basis is typically better your if you can manage in the right way there's be more opportunities so i think letting ego get in the way of actually making money right like i know people made more money on so to give an example, I made more money on my single family house that I built a few years ago in Tampa than dollar for dollar. It'll make unlikely any deal I've done in real estate as an operator, right? So I think people get this mis- you know, this this perception that you have to do super big deals to make a lot of money. If you own a lot of smaller deals, right? If you can figure out how to manage those efficiently, there's huge value in doing so, right? So like, there's a lot of ways to go make money. You don't have to go follow the crowd and do super large deals, even though we plan on doing that in certain capacity going forward, right? So the investor base, we build the partners we have, but there's nothing wrong with doing smaller deals. They can be far more profitable dollar for dollar for you as well. Um, you can own more than to yourself too. So I think don't let ego get in the way of making money when you look at those projects. And also another hot take too, is if you're a capital raiser, get AUM out of your fucking bio. <laughs> That's I have uh, a really funny thought on that that we can talk about offline about AUM. Uh, but with that said, two people come to mind actually when you speak on deals that maybe aren't the largest and grandest. You know, we just closed a hundred five million dollar deal, and that's really nice for us. But for an investor, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for you to have a deal that's sub five million dollars. It's undervalued, where you know your hundred grand and a said deal might go a little bit further than what it could in our institutional level deal. So the two people that come to mind are Axel and Tori. So those gentlemen yeah. are studs. I mean, I see uh, Tori taking a Twitter seemingly with, you know, his deals in Michigan that maybe are a little bit depressed. He probably goes direct to selling someone like Axel with his deals in kind of the New Hampshire area, the North, the tucked away in the Northeast. He seems to have a good system and strategy there to, you know, find deals likewise to Tori, to find deals that are a little bit uh, underappreciated and, you know, are just not an institutional space where you will truly get a mom and pop owner who might have actually not raised rents for 10 years. And those stories do exist. You know, they're not everywhere, obviously, because they'd be bought left and right, but they do exist for the people that are really niche in their market. To take this step further, even I've got a good buddy of mine who buys single family homes in the Midwest. Some homes he buys, I've had worse dinner tabs in those homes, right? Like he buys some stuff for a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, three grand, and they, you know, ten thousand dollars, those things will rent for a thousand dollars a month. So like you don't need to have some big sexy business, right? Like you can go own laundromats, you can go own a pest control company, you can go own landscaping companies, right? Like don't let ego get in the way of making money. And um, I think those people kind of hit it on the head too, is you know, profitability and simplicity is never a bad thing as well either. Yeah, I love it. Where can everyone find you, Sam? 
So I'm super active on LinkedIn. Um, you know, you can go check out our site for Fully Funded uh, called fullyfunded.capital. We are, that should be up and running in the next week. And then techfester.com is our uh, site there as well. Cool. Thank you so much for being the second guest on Fun Friday. Everyone, I hope you have a great weekend. Take care. See you on the next show.